I'm Megan Price, head of the Secretariat of the Knowledge Platform Security and Rule of Law. You're listening to Fragile Truths. In this podcast series, we're setting up conversations between, on the one hand, researchers interrogating some of the fundamental assumptions underpinning current security and rule of law policies, and on the other hand, policy officers who are responsible for negotiating, interpreting, developing, and overseeing these very policies. The researchers interviewed for this series were part of the Security and Rule of Law Research Program of VOTRO, Science for Global Development, and the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Now, as anyone listening to this podcast will know, international security and rule of law interventions take place in extremely complex settings where reliable information can feel impossible to ascertain. And despite this, or perhaps because of it, there is often a strong desire among those working in this sector for evidence concrete facts, certain truths that can guide decisions and provide the foundations of a strategy. This podcast is about the search for such guidance and about recognizing when those foundations, those truths, may be fragile. Today we hear a conversation between Frank Housing, a senior policy officer at the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and Thijs van Leer, Thijs was previously the program director for Causes and Resolution of Exile at International Refugee Rights Initiative. Frank and Thijs discuss the complexities of refugee return in the Great Lakes region. Now, for many policymakers and international aid actors, return represents the most favorable resolution of a displacement crisis. However, as Thijs and Frank unpack further in their conversation, there are important risks and consequences that are not often or sufficiently considered. Thijs also reflects on both the challenges and the value of working closely with local researchers and coordinating projects across the three contexts. And he puts his finger on a few of the key sore spots when it comes to presenting independent research to policymakers and programming leads. Beyond this, the conversation provokes a number of interesting reflections on return programs, which are often designed as a humanitarian event focused on logistics and adherent to specific international legal frameworks. I found it a compelling deep dive into the work Tyson and his colleagues are carrying out and felt better informed for having listened to it. We hope you'll feel the same. So today we speak with uh, Tyson van Laar, Great Lakes region expert. And uh, we're going to discuss his, his research on the politics of return in the Great Lakes region. We're going to focus on the lessons he learned and what they mean for policymakers and practitioners uh, uh, will be something we discuss as well. But Thijs, first, can you can you introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Thijs van Laag. I've been working on issues to do with human rights, conflict and displacement in the Great Lakes region for a few years now. I did this research when I was still working with International Refugee Rights Initiative in Uganda. I've since moved on and working with other projects, but of course still on, on the Great Lakes region, which is my focus of interest and, and a bit my passion, I have to admit. How did you get interested in the in the, in the Great Lakes uh, region? I think I've always been interested in the Great Lakes region, even when I was younger. But I think I, I started working on the DRC uh, about about ten years ago, and that triggered my my interest in the, in this region. I think both because of its complexities and of its tragedies in the past, and I think I've remained in, remained interested in it. Because of, despite the fact that this, it's often hard to see progress, uh, at least in, in, in the short term, when it comes to the issues of conflict, displacement, and human rights. At the same time, 
you always meet, even in this research, such dynamic people that are willing to make a difference in the region through their research and through the advocacy that they're doing. And that is really promising. So we're talking about the Great Lakes region and you studied three cases. Can you, can you quickly introduce those, uh, those three cases? Sure. So we first, in our report, start with uh, the case of Burundi, where since 2017, more than 100,000 refugees have returned from Tanzania. And they fled to Tanzania mostly around 2015, 2016, because of the political crisis in, in, in Burundi. Secondly, we talk about uh, the case of Faradje, which is in northeastern DRC, bordering South Sudan and, and close to Uganda as well. And in that case, we talk about a group of returnees that initially fled from the DRC into South Sudan because of the atrocities committed by the Lord Resistance Army in 2008-2009, but then were forced to flee back to their home areas, so from South Sudan back to the DRC uh, in 2016, because the conflict in South Sudan was affecting them and had reached the area where the, the refugee camp where they were staying is located. And then the third case study is about Kalehe, which is in South Kivu province in, in eastern DRC at the shores of Lake Kivu and bordering Rwanda. And there, well, you have a very complicated region where there have been different waves of displacement, but especially after the, the genocide in Rwanda, there were Rwandan refugees that arrived accompanied by former inter-Hamwe, so militiamen, who then forced Congolese Tutsis living in Kalehe to flee to, to Rwanda to seek uh, safety. And the return of those refugees is ongoing, but is especially being expected and creating quite some animosity in Calais. And what was, what was the main question of the, of the research? So it focused on return of refugees or anticipated return. What is it that you wanted to focus on? We wanted to unpack, I think, what the impact of refugee return is on the zones that people return to. Often in, in the kind of policy discourse, refugee return is seen as, as the, the most favorable situations to solve displacement crises, right? The best way to, to deal with displacement is for people to go back uh, to their home areas. Um, and that's one of the sustainable solutions, durable solutions that in the policy speak, UNHR and, and other actors talk about that often. Uh, but we wanted to see how the return of those refugees impact on the conflict dynamics in the zones of return. And often those zones of return have not completely changed, of course, since those refugees left. Much of the conflict dynamics, much of the issues that people fled in the first place are often still present in some way or form. And given that, that continuation of the situation, if you then suddenly have a return of vast amounts of people, uh, often tens of thousands of people, sometimes in a short time frame, we thought that undoubtedly that should, should have an impact on, on the, the, the situation. And secondly, we also wanted to look how the return of those refugees, how that impacts the relationship between those refugees and the local authorities um, in its variety, and we can come back to that later, of, of authorities that, that exist in those areas, but also with those that dis 
decided to stay. We call them stays, but I don't know if that's a that's a real English word. Um, with those stays that decided to stay for some reason in in the area that that refugees return to. So if I understand correctly, returning is often seen by policymakers as the best option, and maybe the sort of negative, the risk, the consequences are sometimes ignored or not sufficiently researched? That's what we feel. I think both, I mean, not sufficiently researched and, and some of the academics involved in our project actually did a, a big research analysis of the, the existing literature and, and, and showed that it was under-researched, but also from a more practical advocacy perspective, which is much more mine. We also saw that in, in the discussions about what should happen with refugees in a given situation, for example, Uganda, where, where I lived for, for the last few years, we saw that when talking about return, it was always seen as the, the best solution because it's so difficult to locally integrate because of dif different reasons. It's, it's, it's very complicated to, to work on local integration of refugees to, for them to stay in their country of exile. It's very difficult, given the global climate, to talk about resettlement. I mean, resettlement used to be quite a viable option for refugees in the past, but these days uh, that has really dried up also because of the, the anti-refugee discourse in some, some Western, uh, Western countries. Um, so then return is seen as, as, as the best option. But we wanted to see, I mean, if that's the best option, according to those policymakers, what does that mean for the country that people return to? Because what you also see in this region, and it's not uh, specific to this region, I think it also happens in, in many other regions that I'm a lot less familiar with, is that there's often a kind of recurrence of displacement, a recurrence of violence and of displacement. People leave their homes uh, because of violence, because of human rights violations. They go to a country in exile and are then going back either because they want to or, or because of uh, force or because they're obliged to go back. But often those people then keep one foot in their country of exile or are forced even to go back into exile, maybe to the same country or even another country, because the root causes as that's often called of, of violence are not addressed. And maybe, and that's what we wanted to find out, because that return of refugees actually exacerbated some of these conflict dynamics. Maybe move to the, to the research. How did, you, how did you organize the research? We did this research with a, a platform of, of quite different actors, I must say. So we, as International Refugee Rights Initiative at the time, coordinated this project. But we did that together with a number of partners. Uh, for each of the case studies, we had organizations based in those countries that were responsible for carrying out the bulk of the research uh, as well. So we brought them all together in that in that Kampala office and started to try to unpack, okay, we decided we wanted to do this research together. What are we going to do now? Because as I tried to explain in, in, in the beginning, these case studies are quite different. And if you write a report about these about three case studies, you kind of want to find a common denominator to try to analyze uh, the, those case studies. We did find some common ground between those case studies, fortunately. But at the same time, and I think the report also shows that, we wanted to let each case study speak for itself. What was the, what was the common ground between the, between the case studies? So there were a few teams, of course, that, uh, that, that came back uh, for the different uh, cases. One was, of course, the relation between returnees 
uh, and the authorities. And in, in all three case studies, we found that when we talk about authority, it's not only the typical local administrative entities or, or the central government. You have a variety of authorities that, that come into play in those different situations, whether it's political parties, uh, especially Burundi, that's quite a strong group, the CNDFDD, especially the ruling party, whether it's customary authorities, which in the DRC is quite important, uh, so traditional authorities that still play an important role these days, but also armed groups in Calais, especially, there's a large presence of, uh, quite a significant presence of, of a variety of armed groups that also play a role of authority. And then we also even realize, well, maybe some of the organizations involved in this research are also a form of authority uh, because they also are present there. They exert uh, a certain influence on, on social relations. So that was one of the common denominators. The other common denominator was, of course, that we wanted to look at that issue of, of return and at the situation also that pushed refugees to leave uh, their country. So that was, of course, something that came back, despite the fact that if you compare these case studies, you see that the way that that exile and return happened was quite different, which made it difficult to compare because you, you saw you were in different stages of that return, uh, displacement and return process. So it's, you know, there, there was no sense in, 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 a, in a literal comparison between those different cases. Other, other issues that we found important were, for example, issues of land, the links with internal displacement, because you don't always have to look only at, at borders, which are always a bit of a social construct anyway, especially in, in this region. So those were a few issues that, that were similar for the three case studies. Yeah. I think, I think the contexts are, are, are relatively difficult. What, what were some of the challenges that your researchers encountered? Yeah, I think they encountered quite a few challenges, were, which were probably quite specific for each of the, the regions. To come back to Kalehe, for example, in South Kivu, there the security issue is is quite a challenge uh, because of the presence of of armed groups, because of the limited presence of state authorities in in the zones where we did the research, and well, often such state authorities can themselves be uh, a source of of conflict and 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 perpetrating human rights, of course. So the security issues. Do you have an example of that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, our, our researchers really have to navigate carefully um, how to, for example, deal with uh, barrières, you know, with uh, places where they're being stopped uh, by militiamen, by maybe local government authorities and how they present themselves uh, towards those authorities when they have to go towards their different stages. And luckily, this time, there was no security incident when they were doing this particular research project. But in the past, of course, there have been quite a number of them. Uh, so it's quite a courageous group of, of researchers uh, doing that. And then just to, to continue on, on the third case study in Farage, um, there was less insecurity, although there have been a number of incursions at the border between South Sudan and, and the DRC, which where we also did our research, because that was, of course, something interesting for us to look into. But of course, you had to deal with different authorities, with different interests, sometimes monetary interests, um, and how to navigate that was not always easy. And we had also actually some, some challenges there because, well, in some of those, especially remote areas, the, the authorities can basically do whatever they want. And one of our uh, researchers, well, the one coordinating our research actually in, in Faradje was, was later on after we published, arrested and held in detention for, for a few months. 
And while it was unclear whether that was related to our research, because he was also involved in, in activism on, on, on other issues, of course that, that I mean that created quite a quite a challenge and not an ideal situation to to do research or to discuss your research with authorities or other actors there. Let's move to the to the lessons learned. What what was the main thing you took away from this research? Well, I think the main thing we took away is uh, how important it is to look at uh, the issue of refugee return, not only as a humanitarian event where you put refugees in buses and drive them over the border, give them some humanitarian support to try to make a living in the first months and then leave them there. You have to look at it as a political process as well. Because often people left the area because of political events happening, uh, whether it's armed group attacks or uh, human rights violations committed by the government or other issues, land conflicts, etc. Uh, when they come back, of course, those issues are still there and are often exacerbated by the fact that they were abroad for a few years, sometimes for prolonged periods. So you have to invest in understanding the political processes that are ongoing as soon as refugees return. And ideally, of course, before you take decisions about refugee return. So that is really the, the main takeaway. Uh, who, is the, who is the you you were talking about? Is this, is this international policymakers, local policymakers? All of them. Yeah, all of them. Because when it comes to issues of, of, of displacement, there's a variety of actors that are involved, whether it's national actors, the national governments, local authorities, international actors such as UNHCR, international NGOs, other UN actors. Unfortunately, not often uh, refugees themselves are involved in decision-making. They're often consulted at best uh, about such, such issues, even though they often know themselves best how to, how to deal with the situation. Uh, so those are the, the actors that, that take decisions. So those are the, the people that we try to reach. And we also try to speak with them, obviously, uh, throughout our research, because we didn't want to do our research and then come back with a nice shiny report and tell them, here's what we saw. We wanted them to be included from the beginning in the research. But that was challenging, I have to say. Challenging to include them in the research. Yes, because some of these actors are not always very keen in having researchers poke their nose in, in what's going on and especially are not very keen in, in having those researchers ask difficult questions that might unveil certain dynamics that they're not very proud about. Uh, and that's what we encountered a few times and that was that was quite challenging sometimes. Do you have um, an example of that? Yeah, a few. <laughs> I have to make sure that I'm not going to make people angry that might be listening to this, this podcast, but... Yeah, for example, when we met with, with UNHR, which we did in, in different, uh, different settings, they were either quite willing to control the research, you know, try to make sure that they knew what was coming out of it and could read it before it would be published, which, of course, we didn't want to, to see happening. Or they were quite defensive when we confronted them with, with allegations that we encountered during our research, saying that issues of corruption were not happening, that we were being overly alarmist about some, some of the conflict dynamics that we saw, or they were either just not very much willing to speak to us. I mean, I remember a meeting where with senior UNHCR officials in, in one of the capitals in the region, 
where we were each given each of the researchers involved in the three cases given five minutes to present their research. And then one of them was already interrupted after three minutes because UNHR wasn't agreeing with what we were saying. Um, and of course, I'm used to interacting with such international officials, bureaucrats. Um, and I know that that is sometimes a dynamic. But if you talk to, if, if local activists that do not always always have that access to those um, big compounds with, with big four by fours in front of it, for them, it's often quite intimidating to be in such offices already. And then if you find this kind of defensive or even hostile reaction, it's not that easy to, to cope with. Why do you think they are defensive? Well, I think, uh, and it depends. I mean, we also, I have to uh, say that we also had really good discussions with some of those people, some UN officials. So some are really open to research. Some just don't really have that kind of tradition of taking into account information that comes from independent actors, from civil society, from NGOs, from academics. And they don't have that tendency to challenge themselves sufficiently about what's going on uh, because they are often also in a kind of a framework where decisions are, are based on humanitarian uh, operational decisions, on kind of legislative frameworks, but that are not always valid for the people on the ground, for the people concerned, for refugees or returnees. What, what would be the lesson that they should take from this to get better at refugee return? Focus on UNHCR, for example. If they get, if they get to be closely involved in organizing refugee return, what should they do better next time? Well, one thing, of course, is to talk to those people involved, not just consult them, but give them a meaningful voice in, in the process. I mean, in, in the different case studies that we did, there was quite a lot of frustration uh, among some people that they were not involved in the decision making, even though it concerns their lives and their livelihoods. So if there's a, an organization that represents returnees, involve them, you know, make sure that they have a say in the process. It's it's really evident, of course. I mean, it's not a groundbreaking recommendation, but it's still very difficult to put that into practice in reality, uh, we're seeing. Uh, involve also the local authorities that are affected. Why is it difficult to uh, to put that in practice? Because that challenges some of the the, the, the ways of working of those organizations. They they have also, and I understand that they have their, their guidelines, they have their international frameworks that they have to follow. But often those frameworks on the ground are not always very relevant. Even the, the mere issue of a refugee, you know, it's someone who has crossed the border because of persecution or, or other reasons. While, while he gets a certain international recognition, which, for example, internally displaced people, are not getting, you know, they don't have that kind of international protection. So returning refugees, especially those that return in an official repatriation framework, get certain benefits because of that international recognition, which returning IDPs, internationally displaced persons, do not get. Also certain benefits that people that decided to stay do not get. And that creates frustration. And we saw that in Burundi and Faraja as well. That the fact that, for example, humanitarian aid was given to returnees only or mostly to returnees created frustration. Or in Faradje, for example, the fact that South Sudanese refugees who also stayed in, in the URC because they had to flee the same violence that returnees fled, that they get humanitarian aid, 
but some of the Congolese wives of those refugees, who they met when they were in South Sudan, when those Congolese wives were refugees, they do not do not get any access to, for example, food assistance. How do you explain that to someone who is actually in the same situation, but just happened to be born or living on one side of the border, which is also a social construct, well, and, and everywhere, but especially in that region? Um, how do you explain that to people? That's that's difficult. So do we see a clash between the international frameworks that the international community always uses and the local and the local context? Well, I think some of these international frameworks, of course, have a reason why why, why they are there. The, the protection of refugees as a, as a internationally recognized concept remains very important. But we just have to make sure that we also adapt sometimes those international frameworks to local realities and make sure that when we approach that, you know, we're not throwing those international frameworks away, but make sure that we avoid conflicts that can be created by a different treatment of different categories of people. And that's something that we also recommend in our research. You know, when you take decisions about returnees, involve them, but also involve those that didn't go into exile, the authorities that are supposed to represent them, although that's often uh, that deserves a lot of nuance as well. But also make sure that when, in the end, when you implement, for example, humanitarian programs, make sure that any everyone benefits from it. And that is, of course, inc- increasingly recognized in humanitarian practice. You know, you don't do harm by benefiting one group or and leaving another group aside. But in practice, it remains still uh, a challenge. Do you think that the, that the international organizations that you talk to do they have the, the capacity, both in terms of sort of uh, time, uh, but also in terms of local local knowledge to, to do this? In terms of time, of course, they, they, they have very many competing demands, a lot of internal bureaucratic demands that they have to deal with. Um, I suppose there's ways of, of lightening that part and making sure that they actually have more time to engage with the people that matter. Do they have enough local expertise i mean there's there's many locals working for those organizations but they are not the decision makers in uh in those organizations for reasons that can be valid in some reasons because the un is of course an international organization Uh, but you have to make sure that you can capitalize on that uh, local knowledge that is there either within an organization or outside of an organization such as the partners we work with that did research on this topic, but that also just live in that reality and that know the reality best. So, so, so looking forward, what would be the main takeaways for for returns within the region? Uh, but maybe also, are these lessons applicable internationally? I think some of these lessons are are applicable internationally. Um, one of the recommendations or one of the lessons that we try to learn from these treat case studies is also that voluntary and accompanied returns, so repatriation processes based on a tripartite agreement, so an agreement between UNHCR and the two countries involved, still remains the best way of returning refugees because it gives them assistance. It ideally also comes with assistance for host communities of those returnees. It also ensures that there's a degree of monitoring, although that can often be reinforced, as the Burundian case study shows. And that monitoring can also come with a certain degree of of protection when things go sour and they they can go sour. So that's, I think, a a takeaway that is relevant beyond the Great Lakes region. And, well, 
the the issue of better understanding the dynamics that are influenced by return i think is is valid for any situation where refugees are are returning because i can imagine that in the middle east or in any other situation conflict dynamics can also be affected whether negatively or positively by returnees returning Thais, is there anything that you that you personally took away from this research that you that you take forward in the future one personal thing that i took away from it is the the wealth of working with a variety of organizations each with a different history and a different way of working but if you combine all that together uh, combine the expertise of, of each of them and try to find a middle ground that that uh, appeases everyone i think you can have a very strong result that can be useful both for policymakers as well as in the, in the academic circles thank you very much thais for your for your time and for your uh, for your answers you're welcome You've been listening to Fragile Truths. This was a conversation between Thijs van Leer and Frank Housink, a senior policy officer at the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. How did we do? What did you find interesting? What was off the mark? You can get in touch with us via the contact points in the show notes. And we also want to generate a discussion on the research like this. So please share the podcast within your network. There are also links in the show notes to the research we discussed in this edition. Fragile Truths is sponsored by Votro, Science for Global Development, and the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I'm Megan Price from the Knowledge Platform Security and Rule of Law. Thanks for listening. <laughs>